Welcome to the Brain Mosh Podcast. I'm your host, Bretto. With me is my co-host, Dryden. Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking about the Enneagram. But before we get into that, Dryden, what have you been listening to? What have I been listening to? I have two things again today, and uh, <clears throat> they are both uh, related to one of my favorite bands in the world, which is AFI. Um, I was doing I was doing a little research into just like the history of the band and everything, and I found that their front man, uh, Davey Havoc, uh, which I'm sure is his real name. I'm sure that's not just a stage moniker. Uh, Davey Havoc has uh, a couple side projects. And one of them is a straight-edge, hardcore punk group called Extremist. And uh, so, obviously, I was interested in that as soon as I found out about it. And uh, so I've been jamming to them. They, as far as I know, they only have one album that they released, and it was released in 2014. But uh, it's really cool. It's it's hardcore punk with very blatantly, uh, very blatant, almost violent, straight-edge lyrics. Uh, which I appreciate, but there's, it's cool. There's almost like an industrial vibe to it. Like almost like a Ramstein kind of vibe. It's just like that's really, really cool. heavy. Yeah. Um, I've been really enjoying that. Then also related to AFI is their newest EP. Uh, the missing man EP, I believe it's called was just released not too long ago. Um, it's only five songs, but they're all dope. Uh, their lead single trash bat. Uh, I've been really enjoying it's, almost reminiscent of AFI's like earlier days, like their earlier uh, grittier punk days when they were more of like a more of like a horror punk kind of group. But yeah, the whole EP is great. I've been really enjoying it. And uh, Trash Bad especially is a bop. So what about you? Uh, for me, I just been jamming the new Church Tongue EP, Hell is Empty. Oh, okay. It's actually, it's pretty sick. Um, it's heavy in all the right ways. I've been really getting into, I think my favorite song off the off the EP is Hell is Empty. Um, he opens up where he's just screaming, give me rest. And then like near the end of the song, he goes into saying hell is empty and I am full. And then it just breaks down and it's one of the coolest things. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, I've been jamming uh, Church Tongue. It's been a cool experience because I haven't really listened to them before. And yeah, that's Probably the main band I've been jamming the most, just because I haven't been listening to too much music over this holiday season. Cool. Yeah. So, you know a little bit more about the Enneagram than what I do. Do you want to start off by giving a bit of a description and or background history of the Enneagram? Yeah, so I don't know if I'm totally up to the task of uh, defining the Enneagram, but uh, as far as I know, it is a very old uh, model of classifying human personality, and uh, it was first sort of popularized by this really weird and bizarre and eclectic thinker uh, named Oscar, I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, Oscar Ikazo or Ichizo, uh, something like that. But, um, yeah, he seems to be a very strange dude. Uh, I've done a bunch of reading about him just online over the last couple of days, and I still can't really pin down what he was. Like, I'm tempted to say that he was a philosopher, but I can't really find any, like, academic credentials to his name. So I'm, I would be hard-pressed to put the term, like, to give him the title of philosopher. But he was a thinker, basically. And he had all sorts of kind of eclectic and weird ideas about... Actually, no, I think he's still alive. So he still has some weird and eclectic ideas about uh, human development and the human psyche and uh, the ways that humans can you know, reach their maximum potential and all that fun stuff. So the Enneagram is uh, basically this nine-pointed shape that uh, kind of is meant to be a model for the spectrum of human personality. So everybody, everybody fits into one of the nine categories, but it's also sort of a spectrum in that, you know, you are a specific point around the shape. And so, you know, if, if you are a type two, uh, you're not just 
like it's not just black and white like you're not just a two you are either a two that leans toward a three or a two that leans toward a one and of course some twos are going to lean more towards the one or the three than others uh some twos are going to be more so just pure twos um so yeah it's it's uh i'm kind of intrigued by it because it it is a spectrum like there's a lot of variability in it um one of the things that I don't really love about other like popular personality models like the Myers-Briggs, for example, is that it's not so much like a spectrum, right? Like it's more so just tries to put you into a concrete category, whereas the Enneagram is a lot more malleable because, uh, you know, like I said, you can be anywhere along that circle and there's, in theory, an infinite number of points along that circle. So, you know, there's, there's room for every single human to still be unique while still fitting into the model, right? Yeah, and that's the one um, thing I actually really enjoy about the Enneagram, where I'm going to say this now before like I forget and then I get flack for it, just because the Enneagram doesn't have as much um, research and rigorous scientific testing to it, and so it's not widely accepted in academia, right. just because what is usually accepted is the big five, Um and even with the big five, it's very um, malleable where there's a scale, but you can be anywhere on that scale and everyone is a little bit different, which I think is inherent value to it just because, yeah, with Maya Briggs, they place you, like you said, they place you in that concrete box and like, this is what you are. But there's, there's room for variability, which I think adds to and really gives people their uniqueness because if not you kind of like break you strip everything away from a person and be like oh i'm only this and i think even then sometimes with the enneagram we can do that just be like i'm a type five kind of thing you know absolutely um but yeah i'll let you continue oh well that was kind of all i had to say about like the history of it um oh, okay. i think it i think it has origins as well in some like weird like ancient streams of mysticism like you know, ancient, like, Middle Eastern mysticism, like, yeah. ancient philosophies. Uh, um, but the Enneagram, as we know and love today, as far as I know, is uh, a product of the 20th century. Um, yeah. Yeah. From what I know about some history, some of the Enneagram is rooted in, like, Sufi mysticism in, like, the Middle East, and then even, like, into Spain in that area. Um, and then it's also has a bit of a history within like Christian mysticism as well. Interesting. And that's um, like my favorite guy to learn about the Enneagram from is Richard Rohr, who is a Catholic uh, theologian and thinker um, who is very, very mystical, almost to a fault, if you ask me, but very mystical in his approach to Christianity. So it makes sense then that it's, you know, that it would have roots in ancient mysticism, and then it would be a guy like that who's bringing it into modern, like, mainstream Christianity. Um, so one thing, before we get into the different types of the Enneagram or the different archetypes, um, I wanted to say that just because it doesn't have any, like, rigorous scientific testing doesn't mean it doesn't have value. Um, right. I find with the Enneagram, it gives a lot of value within human relationship and how we interact with each other. Um, Cause the more that we understand each other and even like some of the core archetypes that a person will fit into there, you know how to really function with them um, and just to even get along in certain ways and why someone is acting one specific way. Cause it's just kind of part of who they are. And if you can kind of, if you know their archetype and you can kind of key in on specific behaviors that are generally associated with them, it really, it really fits. Right. And while we're on, while we're talking about the whole like academic rigor side of things, um, it should like, I, I, I would kind of like to say that um, pretty much any psychoanalytic theory is not going to be um, scientifically provable right? Uh, I don't know if provable is a word, but it is now, you know what I mean? It is now I just made it. Um, but yeah, so based on my very limited understanding, uh, like the, the difference between psychology and psychoanalysis 
is that, you know, psychology is based much more in uh, rigorous scientific methods. Like it's based in observable characteristics and observable correlations and behaviors in the human be in like human behavior, right? Whereas psychoanalysis is very theoretical. It's asking questions like, you know, what, what really makes up like the human psyche? What, uh, like what key elements in our development like in our development as human beings, uh, you know, shape how we turn out as adults and the behaviors that we exhibit as adults. Um, and it's very theoretical. And, you know, the, the works of Freud and Carl Jung, for example, will never be able to be scientifically proven because, like I said, they're very theoretical and they have to do with, uh, or like with deep elements of the human psyche and the human mind that, uh, modern scientific methods really can't reach, right? So when, so I agree with what you're saying. Like just because it's not scientifically verifiable and it might not be accepted by modern uh, modern psychology, that doesn't mean that it's not still like valuable, right? And that we can't still find meaning in it. Absolutely, I think we even do the same thing with religion. We cannot prove oh, absolutely. or disprove God, but religion plays a valuable role within our society where it can bring people together. It can give people a sense of meaning within their church community. It can give them comfort if they have a terminal illness and a variety of other things. So just because there isn't any um, rigorous testing or actual proof that this is a thing, it still has value within people and our society. And I think as long as we recognize that and then take it just with a grain of salt, we can um, we can apply it to our lives in a healthy manner. Yeah, for sure. So here's the thing. This is the brain mosh podcast. <laughs> so we've already, so we've covered the brain side of the topic. Now we got to cover the mosh side. Absolutely. So do you want to talk briefly about, uh, what album we're going to be using as the model for our discussion today and why we're going to be using it? Yeah, absolutely. So for we're using one of our favorite band, Silent Planet, of course. Um, their album, Everything With Sound, that was released um, July 1st, 2016, I believe, um, deals with essentially the Enneagram and different issues within society and different the different archetypes as well. Um, so we're going to dive into that a little bit once we break down the archetypes. And then also... Uh, the basis for the mosh side of the conversation is sleeping at last. Um, uh -huh. He he's currently putting out singles that correspond to each of the archetypes. Um, one through seven are out. Eight and nine are soon to come, but they're also just unreal. With that being said, yeah. should we go into the different archetypes in the Enneagram? I guess we could. Should we start out saying what types we are? Yeah, absolutely. All right, go for it. So I am type, I'm the archetype five. I am the thinker or also known as the observer and or investigator. Um, generally, the type five has limited energy. So there's a certain allocation of energy to um, important topics and to people. Um, generally tend to be kind of a recluse and pulled back from society generally like to observe things a little bit more, um, more concerned with gathering information and we want to know everything and anything. Um, we have a dislike of ambiguity, that sort of thing. Um, tend to, I find this in myself a lot. I exist in my own head, which a lot of type fives mm -hmm. will, can probably relate to. Um, tend to be a little bit more emotionally detached. So like saying I love you is one of the hardest things for people like me mm -hmm. and or other just type fives in general um, can be kind of cynical and stuff, valuing privacy. Um, yeah, that's a bit of an overview of a type five and that's what I am. Do you have anything to add, Dryden, for type fives? Uh, for fives? Well, I apparently have a five wing. So I relate quite a bit to a lot of the five characteristics but i my main type is a four i believe so my my archetype is uh the individualist or um i've also heard uh the artist or like the romantic things like that um 
basically the fours, uh, the fours like primary motivation is to be, and I, I, when I learned this, my whole life made sense because this is absolutely how I've been for my whole life. But, uh, the four's primary motivation is to set himself or herself apart from the mainstream world and to find a unique identity, to find their authentic identity and to be, uh, like true to themselves. So, you know, I've always been really bad for being the guy who's like, uh, you know, oh, like I listened to that band before they were cool or like, yeah, the movie was good, but the book was better. Like, you know, crap like that. Yeah. I'm like the king of saying stuff like that because I, um, my primary motivation as a four is to let it be known that I'm different, right? And that I'm special. Um, fours are very often, um, and I also see this in myself a lot, but fours really dwell in sort of a mood of melancholy. Like we, we have a lot, we find a lot of value in sadness and we find a lot of beauty in like the negative emotions that other types might not enjoy as much. Um, we, and I've always noticed that in myself, I've always been attracted to, you know, sad music and sad movies. Like I have always found the beauty in, in tragedy and in sadness. Right. Um, and that's too why. I think uh, the romantic is often used as like the model for the four because, um, you know, going back into like European <clears throat> um, artistic and cultural history, like the romantic movement was very much an artistic movement about like the beauty in mystery and the beauty in melancholy. Um, yeah. And I, I relate to that a lot. And when I, when I found out that I was a four, it like my like I said earlier, my whole life kind of made sense. Like the more that I read about the four and our primary motivations, um, it just really, really helped me to identify why I have some of the like characteristics that I have. And uh I think that's one of the reasons why I value the Enneagram above other personality models is because I feel like it's actually helped me to understand myself. And uh almost better myself, I guess, because now when I'm tempted to say, uh, oh, you know, I, I liked that band before they were cool. Like now I understand that that's just because my primary motivation is to be different. And, uh, that's kind of helped me to come to more of a place where I'm, I'm okay with not being different all the time. Like I'm okay. I mean, I'm still, I'm still definitely a work in progress, but, um, the Enneagram has definitely been a model for like self-help and self-improvement for me in that way. Like by identifying my primary motivation, I've definitely been able to um, identify some of my negative personality traits and uh, kind of improve them. I think again, it's a lifelong process, but you know, absolutely, it can never be too static, or else you never change. Right, but it and takes time. You know, you know what the biggest room in the world is? No, what is it? The room for improvement. <laughs> I hate that I found that funny. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Um, I had a teacher in high school who used to say that all the time. That's fantastic. No, I was going to say, I can totally agree how when I found out when, or I shouldn't say when I found out, when I discovered that I'm a five and when I discovered the Enneagram and just the characteristics and traits of the archetype five of the observer investigator, everything kind of made sense for me as well. Just knowing how... I don't have the energy to constantly be talking to people and how I need to go recharge my battery or how like when people talk just to talk, it kind of drives me nuts a little bit. Like when there's no purpose behind it, I just want to detach and go into my own head. Just it, And it's, it's one of the things where everything for me, I find everything has to have a sense of purpose. If there's no purpose, it's meaningless and I don't want anything to do with, to do with it really. Um, yeah. It the Enneagram really can change the outlook because I even look at like my like family and friends and like try to think of like what they are and how I can be better relationally towards them. And yeah, sorry, slight tangent. Um, I will, uh, I'm gonna go into talking about the different archetypes now since we, yeah, absolutely, the ones that we are. Yeah, go for it. So archetype one is the reformer. So the reformer characteristically is always trying to be innovative and more efficient. Um, so they constantly try to make things better. 
Um, so you may notice that a friend or family member could be um, the re uh, reformer. Um, if, for example, like you're loading the dishwasher and then like they're watching over your back to see if they can do it better. Then once you leave, mm -hmm. they reorganize everything. Um, so they're kind of like a Steve Jobs character um, kind of thing where they're always striving to just improve everything, be more efficient. How can this process be quicker, better? And yeah, um, generally the reformer, when they are in a sense of security or um, just when they're in a good space in life, they tend to be more like the archetype seven, which is the enthusiast. So they generally can sometimes take on those characteristics and being more spontaneous and wanting to do different things and just enjoying life in times of stress the reformer can then turn into um, a little bit of a four as well, being a little bit more melancholy and just being that individual, as you were describing before. Um, do you want to cover archetype two? Yeah, I can actually. I have a lot of experience with the two. Um, there's a lot of twos in my. There's a lot of twos in my family. Uh, my mom is a two which um, is, is funny because the two is sort of, um, as, far as, I'm, as far as I know, the two is sort of the stereotypical motherly figure. Um, the two's archetype um, is the helper or the giver. So the two finds a lot of their value in being of service to other people and in loving and helping and serving other people. And... Uh, yeah, like I said, I was raised by a two, and, you know, my mom has exhibited that uh, for my whole life. Like, she's always just sort of been, like, she wants to be a mom to the whole world, right? She just wants to take care of everyone. Uh, she wants to, you know, make sure everyone, uh, everyone's needs are met. She wants to make sure everyone's happy. And, you know, when I was growing up, I always felt sort of bad because, you know, my mom would be so sac so self-sacrificing, and she would like sacrifice so much of her own stuff to make sure that others that others needs were met but now that i'm now that i'm coming to understand her as an adult uh, i realize that that is genuinely what makes her happy like if she has something that someone else needs it genuinely makes her happier to give it to someone else than to keep it for herself right and um she's in school right now to become a social worker, which I, which I think is awesome. And it's the happiest she's ever been because it gives her that opportunity to just be of service to the world and be of service to other people. Right. So, uh, the two, uh, their basic fear, uh, I'm just reading right now, the two's basic fear is being unloved. Um, so that's again, like that's where their, that's where their behavior comes from is that they're, uh, like they're ensuring that they are, of service to other people and that they are valuable to other people. Um, and they, and they draw their value out of their value to other people. Right. Whereas I'm the complete opposite. I'm a four. I draw all of my, I like, I'm very selfish by nature. Um, I draw all of my value from myself. Uh, whereas the two is the complete opposite. Their value is found in what they can do for others. Um, which is really, it's a very foreign concept to me. Um, but it's really, I think, I think it's quite amazing to be a, or it must be quite amazing to be a two, because I think that's like, I think that is like the Christian ideal in a lot of ways. I think that's like that Christ-like mentality of just laying down your own life for the good of others, that we all kind of, we all kind of know that we should be more like that, but none of us really actually want to be like that, right? Whereas the two like actually wants to be like that. And uh, I think that's really cool. In, in times of stress, the two... Uh, shifts more to the eight. So the eight is the challenger and the protector. Um, and then in times of security, the two shifts into a four, um, which I think is interesting because, you know, I've always been very close with my mom and, you know, she's a two. So in times of security, she shifts towards a four, which is what I am. And as a four, when I'm in a time of stress, I shift towards a two. So I feel like there might be significance there to like my, to like, any relationship between a four and a two, but you know, my model is me and my mom, uh, you know, in times of stress, I shift into her and in times of security, she shifts into me. Right. Which I think is interesting. Yeah. That, that's kind of, that's kind of neat how 
as like with your model between you and your mom with your relationship you just really lean into each other when you need to Mm -hmm. yeah that that's kind of i never actually thought of it that way just because i want i never thought about like what necessarily my family is and that's right. you you know what your family is and how that dynamic works um the one thing i want to add with twos is i i have a couple twos in my life that i can definitely recognize as twos um that they will sometimes unconsciously kind of expect or no i shouldn't say expect but they want the love and the help that they're giving out to be reciprocated um, mm-hmm. so one thing I know that I try to do with twos is to like ask how to love them better, you know, mm-hmm. cause like loving comes so easy to them, but it's difficult for others, especially as a type five. Um, mm-hmm. so that's, that's one and thing sometimes, you can keep in mind. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, and sometimes, you know, the two doesn't really understand that their capacity for love and their capacity to serve other people is very unique to their type, right? And it's oh, yeah. not something that comes so easily to every other type. So yeah, like you said, like it's e- it would be easy, I think, for them to just assume that the same service that they give to others should be reciprocated to them. But, you know, they don't realize that it doesn't come nearly as naturally to everyone else as it comes to them. Totally. Um, should we move on to the third archetype? Yeah, go for it. Um, so the third archetype is the achiever. So the achiever generally uh, needs and wants to be perceived as being successful. Um, they will try to often be whoever they need to be for a group to love them. They will seek admiration, and and they are very goal-driven. So these people tend to be fairly successful as well. Um, in times of security, um, the achiever is a type six and then in times of stress, they can be a type nine, which six is the loyalist and nine is the peacemaker. Um, Dryden, do you, I know, you know, a little bit more than me. Do you have anything to add about, uh, the achiever? Um, not not really. Uh, I, I will say that my dad is a three, so I was raised by a three. Um, and again, when I started learning about the Enneagram, everything about it made sense. Uh, my dad has always been a really uh, out there, like, businessman, uh, very, you know, committed to success and very driven to succeed. And, uh, you know, my dad, the interesting thing about my dad is that he is like a textbook schmoozer, right? Like, he can be friends with literally anyone and he knows like he knows how to go into any conversation to win the other person over to his side you know what i mean yeah. like i think he could i think he could almost be a politician like he just talks to people and wins them over to his side and i think that's a very um important thing to note about the 3 is this ability to just relate to people and, um, yeah, to relate to people and just to connect to people and, uh, just to kind of like, I, like, I feel like it's almost an image, image thing where they know how to project whatever image they need to project for whichever social situation they're in. You know what I mean? Like they, they know how to relate to whoever they're talking to and they know how to be what people want them to be. If that makes sense. Um, so one thing I want to mention with the uh, with fives, um, in times of stress, fives can be more like a seven, um, which I find I do. Frequently, there's nothing more that I love in times of stress from studying is going out and like buying a box of cookies and eating the whole box in the sitting. <laughs> um, and then in times of security, um, we at fives will lean being uh, an eight. Uh, so that challenger or protector kind of comes out in which if you would ask my mom, she would tell you that I will challenge her on everything and anything if I think she's wrong. And so it's, it's kind of a flaw a little bit, I would say. I think that just comes from 
wanting to observe and know everything when we get that knowledge when anyone kind of says anything that's slightly off or that just may be wrong you just want to jump in and correct them um which i've become aware of and i try not to do as much and just kind of bite my tongue through it um but yeah so that's the that's what fives are like in times of stress and security uh and so can jump into archetype six, which is the loyalist. Um, so the dominant emotion for the loyalist tends to be anxiety, which can be at a low level, but can spike. Um, generally, they will be thinking about a worst case scenario and almost be prepared for anything. Um, loyalists are concerned with... Um, with who's in authority, really? So there can be two types of sixes. Um, one is known as a phobic six, who where they will submit to authority. Um, therefore, this authority is seen as like a security person in a sense. Um, the other type is the other type of six is suspicious of authority figures. So um, they assume that the authority figure is not to be trusted in a way that they and then they will try to like expose or bring down this authority figure. Um, often sixes uh, long to feel secure, uh, but they doubt and don't trust themselves often. Uh, they deal with fear through pessimism. In times of security, sixes will lean to uh, nines, and then in stress, they go to threes. Um, yeah, so that's the loyalist, sometimes otherwise known as the devil's advocate. And the, uh, the seven... Um... The seven, in a lot of ways, I feel like is the exact opposite of what I am, the four. The sevens are very happy and upbeat individuals, uh, generally speaking. Um, they love to like, live life to the fullest, I should say, and uh, just like get out there and try new things um, and just embrace what there is to you know, be experienced in life. Um, the f the seven I think can struggle with sort of like uh the grass is always greener kind of mentality, like no matter where they are they think there's something more exciting or more fun going on somewhere else. Um, I think of the seven as being this stereotypical like old like Broadway performer just like out there in front of the crowd like singing and dancing and you know just giving it their all. Um, again the exact opposite of me. Uh, which is the four, which tends to, you know, sit alone in your room and read sad books and listen to sad music, right? Like the complete opposite. So I've always had an interesting relationship with sevens. I actually have a surprising amount of friends who have turned out to be sevens. Um, I think I find, like, as I mature as an individual, I think I've found a lot of, um, like, positivity from the sevens because they force me to kind of get out of my shell and get out of my comfort zone and, you know, get out there and experience new things. But at the same time, for you and I both, I'm sure the sevens can be very stressful people to be around because, you know, there might not be as much planning as, as we would like. There might not be as much, like, foresight and organization as you, as you and I would like. Um, so... Yeah, I've I I have a love hate relationship with the sevens. I I love them because I have a lot of good friends who are sevens, and they do definitely enrich my life. But they also stress me out a lot. Yeah, I can agree with you there. Where like sevens, I kind of view them as the eternal optimist, and so like that can it kind of rubs off on you a little bit. Where like it's it's just infectious. Where they're so happy and excited all the time. Where it just kind of makes you happy and excited. But with them being so spontaneous and sporadic and wanting to do things all the time and just want to go places, it's it's stressful because for me as like a five with my I have my certain set of energy and trying to allocate it that I can't do it. It's like sometimes it just let me stay in my room. I don't want to go anywhere. I'm just let me stay in my room, be a cynic. I want to be by myself. And because <laughs> sevens are always on the go. And the seven will think like the sevens that I know, they, they think that like, they tend to think that they're the normal one and that I'm the weird one. Right. Like they tend to think that if I don't want to go skydiving on a moment's notice, like, well then I'm just boring and I just need to live life to the fullest. And, you know, um, 
that's what I've noticed from some sevens at least is there's this mentality that like they're not they're not spontaneous everyone else is just boring right yeah yeah and that's that's exactly it um so the seven uh in times of stress they turn into the one uh the perfectionist and in times of security the seven leans toward the five which i find interesting yeah, which I think that could be a little bit when if a seven gets stressed out and they're trying to cope with that stress and fear, um, sometimes if they if it's over positivity or anything, if they kind of go into a five, they can think a little bit more logical about things mm. and try to like work things through. And then once they do that, they can revert back to being their very excited and outgoing selves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, the last two types, the eight and the nine, I have to admit, I don't really know anything about because I don't know anyone personally who fits into these types. So the only things that I know are like the textbook definitions. But um, what, like, what, what do you know about the eight? Do you know any eights personally? I, I don't think I really. Oh, actually. I lied. I do know an eight. Um, so I'm not going to call them out or anything, but and I'm just going to give a description of the eight. So the archetype of the eight is the challenger and or protector. Um, so these people generally have a certain level of intensity um, where they will take control of a room, whether um, it's just everyone has to be focused on them or um, if the room is kind of too quiet and everyone's just talking and there's not enough excitement they will almost kind of cause problems so they would try to start a good argument just so then it gets more lively and there's more energy in a room Mm -hmm. often eights can be perceived as a little bit more aggressive um and that is due to they like to have control of the environment that they're in they will like they like everything in excess they generally feel bigger than what they are, so you can kind of knock them down a peg if you can stand up to them. Um, they are uh, so eights are loyal with a keen sense of justice. They will look out for the underdog often. Um, um, so with eights, when sometimes pe- other archetypes, so like a five, as an observer, keeping to myself. Eights will try to intimidate almost, but that can be a, almost a sense and sign of in- intimacy because they like to push back. They like a bit of a pushback. Mm-hmm. Um, and then generally, eights are concerned with uh, betrayal. And so sometimes this is a very, I'm painting eights with a broad brush, but they will start arguments to kind of see what you will say just so they can get a better sense of who you are and just what you will say in times of stress almost. Um, so their combativeness hides a tender side often. Um, they don't want to have control over people. Um, they just don't want to be controlled more than anything. In times of stress, um, eights go to fives, and then in security, eights go to twos. That that makes sense because I do actually, I in, in your just. Dis- in your description, I think I thought of someone I know who's an eight. And that makes sense that in times of stress, they turn into a five because they become reclusive. Yeah. Uh, like they, I don't know if it's almost like a control thing where they realize that like they're losing control of the environment around them. So they just hide and they just like recede back into their own environment. Um, yeah, I don't know. The eight is, like I said, pretty foreign to me, so. I think that would make sense because if when they kind of remove themselves from the environment that they feel like they don't have control in, when when it's just themselves, they have control and then they can work through whatever is causing that stress, mm-hmm. which then can give them a sense of control in a wider environment, whether that's a group of people in a workplace or friends or whatever that may be. Um, yeah, I don't know. I know a little bit. I just know the general um of eights and nines but yeah just because i don't know too many eights myself i can probably name like three off the top of my head Mm -hmm. what Um, about what about nines you better take nine too because you probably know more than i do so nine the archetype nine is the peacemaker they so 
these people generally can be um, a little more passive aggressive and stubborn. Um, nines will avoid conflicts at all cost. I mean, some some people will argue that it's because conflicts can cause a disconnect between people and relationships. Um, nines, as the peacemaker, can be fairly empathetic towards everyone, and they will they can see everyone's perspective fairly well. Um, they do they don't utilize the positive aspects of anger. They can they just are um, avoidant to conflict overall. Um, one thing with nines, since they do avoid trying to use positive aspects of anger, they don't know how to, um, they don't necessarily know how to assert themselves in situations. So like two and eight, they just like back down and, and or run away generally, but it's okay for them to. And it's, it's when it's, probably a hurdle for them to kind of overcome. Um, the peacemaker will generally go with the flow as well, um, just so they're kind of perceived as a nice person and they're not making waves in whatever social situation they're in. Um, uh, referring back to them being passive-aggressive, that can take the form of being silent, stubborn, and or other things, um, whether it's like they were told to go do something, but they just blatantly ignore it just because they weren't happy with that person um nines often tend to be naturally fairly uh spiritual as well um yeah and so with nines they sometimes can exhibit the trait of sloth potentially do potentially because um then they aren't as affected by life um so nines often have the least amount of energy than any of the other archetypes and that's because they are spending so much time and energy trying to preserve their inner harmony, and in which that makes sense for why they are uh, they avoid conflict so much, and they will typically not jive well with eights. Um, in times of stress, um, nines will go to six, and then in times of security, they go to threes, and so. Yeah, that's the archetype of the peacemaker. Nice. So those are the nine basic types there, I guess. Um, and of course, we should restate that like the Enneagram is a spectrum, right? Like you don't fit just into one category alone. Like you are somewhere along that circle fitting into one general category. But of course, there's all these weird feeds and lines coming into you from the other types, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the one thing just because everyone's a little bit different. You're going to exhibit traits of any of the nine archetypes at any given time um, of your life. And that's very situational often as well. Um, so now based from the foundation of this discussion, should we jump into everything with sound? I can think of no better plan. Okay. Uh, do you want to talk about um, the song that corresponds to your archetype? Yes. I would, I would love nothing more. Um, okay. Because I actually really, uh, I actually really love um, my song. Um, the song on this album that correlates to my type is actually just my favorite song on the album, just objectively. Um, it is track four, of course. Uh, it's Understanding Love is Loss. Um, and the thing that really... Uh, really i think makes this song relevant to the four is uh just exactly what the title says uh finding the value in loss and finding the value in uh melancholy um like i said you know the four is often categorized as the romantic and if we go back to the romantic era in you know european artistic and cultural history it was very much about um the beauty of sadness and the beauty of mystery and the beauty of loss, right? Um, there's this idea from a lot of romantic thinkers and romantic artists that things really become more valuable once you have lost them. And, uh, you know, it's this idea, uh, I guess it's kind of like, you know, you don't know what you have till it's gone, right? It's this idea that you love something more once you've lost it and you love something more uh, once you are absent from the object. Um, and I think that's really what this song is getting at. Of course, this song 
uh, begins with uh, some very provocative descriptions of a couple of famous suicides uh, throughout history of artists um, that have killed themselves. And of course, it's a pretty tragic way to start a song. But I think it's also relevant because there is, um, there is a very uh, romantic, uh, how should I say this without sounding like I'm promoting suicide? Let me just say right now, I'm not at all promoting suicide, but there is sort of a uh, romantic, almost poetic element to suicide throughout, uh, you know, Western cultural history that uh, I think the four can kind of tap into. And I think that's kind of what this song is getting at. Um, I once heard Richard Rohr say that if you have ever fantasized about the perfect suicide, then that is pretty much a telltale sign that you're a four, right? Um, which is incredibly morbid and incredibly tragic. And, uh, you know, like I said earlier, I'm not trying to endorse suicide in any way. It, it's a terrible thing. But there is sort of an undeniable uh, romantic, um, you know, sort of motif behind uh, the suicide of the artist that can be seen in a lot of Western literature and Western art. Um, and I think that's, again, kind of what this song is getting at. Um, he describes the suicides of a couple famous artists, um, namely Sylvia Plath, Ernest Hemingway, Virginia Woolf, and David Foster Wallace. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's a very, it really is a very tragic song from a music, from a purely musical perspective. I think it's a banger. I think it's a masterpiece of modern metalcore as is everything that Silent Planet produces. But um, yeah, I really love this song. I really relate to it. Um, not that I'm suicidal. I'm lucky enough to have never gone there. But um, I, think, I, think it's, I think it's a very dark... Um, I think it's a very dark and shadowy element of the human psyche that fours are kind of a little more in tune with than other types. And I think that's kind of what this song is getting at. It's almost, um, you know, like this, the suicidal nature is almost, um, and again, I, I don't really have the authority to say this, but it's almost like what Carl Jung would refer to as uh, like the shadow self, right? It's this kind of dark and mysterious element of the human psyche that no one, no one really wants to go there, but the fours kind of find beauty in it and find some artistic meaning in it where other types may not. Um, yeah, so it is a dark song and it is tragic. But I, I love it a lot, and I think that what it's really tapping into is this romantic ideal of uh, just the beauty of loss and the beauty of sadness. Um, yeah, what about you? So the archetype of type 5 that corresponds to the album is track 6, which is Panic Room. Um, Panic Room actually deals with... Uh, war and post-traumatic stress disorder um, that soldiers will go through often when they come back from their experience overseas um, serving their country. Um, so although I've never experienced PTSD and I'll probably never be a soldier, I think Garrett does a great job um, lyrically more than anything showing the um, one showing the plight that the soldier experiences when they come home and they have to live with um, now their mental illness. But he tastefully and carefully criticized the concept of war and just what it does to people overall because Panic Room is actually based off of a real person's experience um, serving Afghanistan. Um, just to kind of go over some lyrics of where he's criticizing there's actually a large portion of the song where he he takes the perspective of a five of just observing the world and war itself, where he says, Praise me for my valor, lay me on a crimson tower, justify my endless terror as my finest hour. And so he he takes the time to criticize how there is a lack of... Um, support for soldiers who come back and who experience PTSD and even just a little bit of the perversion that war has done, I think, on our society a little bit 
of how how you were saying with understanding love as loss, we romanticize death and suicide to a degree. And I think we've done the same with war where it's, it's romanticized within like our video games with Call of Duty. It's just another thing. People go off to war all the time and we need to always be bringing up a new generation of soldiers kind of thing. And he takes a second to criticize that and, to say that this isn't the best where we are potentially imposing our own Western uh, philosophy and ideologies onto another nation state. And we could potentially even be terrorizing those, those people. Um, and when I say people, I'm talking about more civilians um, disrupting their daily lives as well. Um, although that is a complicated topic, and something could spend hours discussing. It's just a facet to think about and I find is incredibly interesting and he does a great job as just observing it and trying to break it down in a sense that is actually digestible. So that is the archetype of uh, the observer in the um, album Everything With Sound. And the song, again, was Panic Room cool yeah um i think i think we should say uh at this point as well that um garrett russell the front man of silent planet and the main lyricist uh does have like a master's degree in clinical psychology as we said in the last episode so um you know everything like he he is approaching these issues these uh these psychological phenomena uh the psychological trauma um, from, you know, almost a professional psychological perspective. Um, yeah. And, and I think that's interesting too, because we were talking earlier about, um, you know, the difference between like psychoanalysis and psychology, like, like where is it scientifically verifiable and where isn't it? Right. And so here we have someone who is, you know, trained in clinical psychology and in the much more like scientifically rigorous side of psychology, um, still finding value and meaning in these Enneagram archetypes, right? And still using them uh, as sort of a meaningful model for uh, the human condition, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> um, should we go on to the next artist potentially, and then we can wrap it up here? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yep. This is, we're going to definitely be taking the mosh out of brain mosh for, for this one, because this is not an artist that you would easily be able to mosh to. I mean, I would try, but it would be tricky. Um, Sleeping at Last. So Sleeping at Last is a very, you know, I'm not, I'm not into a lot of mellow music. Um, I'll say that like blankly, I'm not into a lot of mellow music. I find it hard to relate to sometimes, but uh, Sleeping at Last is one musical well, it's just one guy, isn't it? Like, is it? It's not really a band, I don't think. I, yeah, um, I think it is just one guy. I'm not a hundred percent sure. That in and of itself is crazy because he must be crazy talented. Um, but yeah, he's one guy that I actually find I can really relate to. Uh, there's his, I find his music quite lovely and quite relatable and meaningful. So the one thing that I actually really dug about Sleeping at Last and listening to, um one through seven, just because eight and nine aren't out yet. Um, I found that going back to you, how everyone kind of has their main core archetype, but it's fairly um, variable where you can express the other archetypes at the same time. Um, When I was listening to um, the seven songs, I don't know if I was just in like an emotional state when I was listening to them, but like, they all just choked me up a little bit. Like, maybe I can use an analogy to, like, paint a better picture, but it was almost like someone's holding your heart in their hands and they're just putting, like, different pressure on it and, like, different combinations of pressure because, like, they just all tugged on, like, my heartstrings in a different way um, where he did a fantastic job um, summarizing the all the archetypes into a single song where they are just simply beautiful and they actually have 
a nice representation of the overall human experience. Because um, I know when I first listened to it and we were discussing this, I didn't really relate to um, uh, four, which was your song. I really, five hit me hard. Um, but then listening to all of them again, there, there's something there that everyone, I think, can really pick out. And it's more of, I, I think he taps into like the, the relational aspect of it. And then it's just the human experience. And I think it is, it's mind blowing to say the least. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that ties into the whole, uh, like the idea of the Enneagram being a spectrum that we've been talking about, right? Like it's not, it's not a concrete black and white sort of a categorization system. It's almost meant to be taken as a whole, right? Like the types all feed into each other. Um, it's it's meant to be almost like a, like a mosaic of the human experience, right? Yeah. So I think I think the same goes for uh, like the two musical projects that we've discussed. Like it's not like you can just listen to the song that's relevant to your. Although I I tend to be pretty selfish as a four, so I like to just focus on my song, but. Uh, like, it's not like you can just focus on your song and let it be, right? Like, all the yeah. songs have meaning for everyone, and they all feed into each other, and it's meant to be one sort of collective experience, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's where I kind of, back to Silent Planet with uh, Everything With Sound, Inhabit the Wound, I think yes. it does a great job of summing that up, where he talks about um, all of the archetypes essentially coalescing together and inhabiting the wound together and just kind of getting rid of the machine um i forget the lyrics off the top of my head but yeah and even then in the center of the album artwork isn't it black because it it's the mix of all the colors coming together yes. as well yeah yeah, yeah yeah so it he then adds that spin on it that it's all interconnected there's it's it's a web more than anything else yeah um i do there are a few elements of the atlas four uh, the song, which is for my my Enneagram type from Sleeping At Last, which I do kind of want to point out. Um, and because I, I want to point this out because I feel like it ties into what I was saying about um, understanding love is lost. Just the the romantic ideals of like mystery and loss and just like the beauty of melancholy, right? But yeah. the uh, sort of the chorus of Atlas Four, uh, he says... I've fallen in love with a ghost, and I lost my balance when I needed it most. This blurry photograph is proof of what I'm not sure, but it feels like truth. Um, when I heard that, when I heard that verse, it really kind of hit home with me, and I, 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 I don't know. I, I feel like he did a really great job of of capturing all the types, but I don't know. There's just something really special about how that verse resonated with me, because the thing about being a four. Um, or one of the many things about being a four, I should say, is that we are kind of obsessed with like certain aesthetics and like certain moods. Um, you know, we love to we love to keep ourselves in like certain moods and certain like creative head spaces, right? And I feel like he captures that when he says, uh, this blurry photograph is proof of what I'm not sure, but it feels like truth. Um, there's like there's this sense in being a four where like you're not totally sure what this mood is that you're trying to capture um you know it's often described as melancholy you know that we love melancholy and that is pretty accurate but there's i think there's this sense of being a four where you're just kind of searching for something true and something meaningful and you're not sure what it looks like and you're not sure what it is but you kind of you, you know it when you see it right like you know it when you you know it when you encounter it, um, whether you encounter it in an artistic endeavor or in another person even. Um, you know, it's like he says, it's a blurry photograph. You're, you don't know what it is. It's kind of hazy and mysterious, but it feels right. Like, you know that that's, you know that it's you. Um, yeah, I feel like that's kind of how the four just relates to their environment. Like, there's just kind of these hazy uh, kind of emotions and feelings coming out of the world, um, coming at you all the time. and you can't really identify them all the time and you can't really describe them to other people, but you kind of know what you like and what you don't like. Right. And it's like, he says, I've fallen in love with a ghost. Like I'm in love with this certain feeling with this certain, um, 
in a certain phenomena. And sometimes I pick it up from other people. Sometimes I pick it up from certain places or like uh, certain pieces of art or whatever. Um, but, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's kind of a ghost. Like it's kind of fleeting and it's kind of quick. Um, it's kind it's, it's a romantic, it's also a romantic idea, I guess, uh, coming out of the romantic movement, uh, coming out of thinkers like uh, Kierkegaard and uh, Kant. Um, you know, Kant had this idea of the sublime, which is um, sort of a method of learning about the world around you, a method of learning truth that sort of surpasses any sort of uh, scientific observation or like sensory experience. Uh, Kant's definition of the sublime is like a sort of transcendent sort of truth and transcendent beauty that can come at you from any sort of uh, aesthetic phenomena and I feel like that's very meaningful to the fore um, is these these moments of pure beauty and these moments of truth that you can't totally define but you know it when you see it but like like he like sleeping at last says it's like you're you've fallen in love with a ghost like it kind of vanishes and it's sort of quick and fleeting but you know it when you see it and you sort of spend your whole life chasing it if that makes sense. It's very it's very hard to explain, but I feel like I feel like other fours will like totally latch on to that idea. Um the same idea is expressed by C.S. Lewis. Um in a lot of places he talks about a feeling called joy, which is sort of this quick and fleeting sense of beauty and just like transcendent truth that he experienced throughout his life. Um and the same idea is present I think in understanding love as loss. He's using the words ephemeral and ineffable, which are two of my favorite words in the world. And they're also two words that I learned from this song. Um, but, you know, ephem these, these sort of mystical experiences that Kant defined as the sublime and that the romantic artists were kind of obsessed with, um, I think Garrett is sort of right to define them as ephemeral and ineffable. Uh, ephemeral meaning that they're very quick, like they're fleeting, they last they like they don't even last as long as it takes to recognize them if that makes sense and uh then they're also ineffable they're indescribable um you can't like as a four you don't really you can't really describe to your peers or to anyone um what it really is that you're after or what it is that you're chasing and i think it leads to i think it can easily lead in my own life especially to uh sort of a sense of like snobbery um, but I think it can also be just a very sort of beautiful and meaningful way to relate to the world around you. Just sort of picking up these little emotions and, um, these, these like aesthetic stimulations from the world around you that other types might not be as in tune to. Um, sorry, that was a huge rant. Well, I had a lot to say about, and way more to say about that than I thought, but, um, but yeah, that's kind of just a little correlation that I found between the Sleeping at Last lyrics and uh, the Silent Planet lyrics. And I think it's very relevant to the archetype of the four as a whole. Yeah, that, that was a trip where I got really... Yeah, that was, that was something else. <laughs> no, I loved it. Um, I do want to revisit that in future episodes because I feel like I didn't do a great job explaining it, but I do have a lot to say on that specific topic. But yeah, I'll, I'll keep myself refrained for now. Yeah, no, we can, we can <laughs> go over it sometime. <laughs> um, that's where I think when it comes to um, the five, I really like how Sleeping At Last covered it. Yeah, he hit the, he hit the nail on the head where he, lyrically he says, I want to watch the the universe expand i want to break into pieces small enough to understand and put it all back together again in a quiet of in the quiet of my private collection where touches on just observing wanting to know everything what really hits me the most in this at least in this song um he begins to say my armor falls apart as if i could let myself be seen even deeply known like I was already brave enough to let go, and now I want to generously lose this energy that I've been hanging onto so desperately. I finally feel the universe expand. It's hidden in the heartbeats exhales and in the hope of the of open hands. Where that I think that hits a few different levels. At least with being a five, it's very pronounced to me. 
for being detached, um, especially emotionally detached from a lot of people. And it's hard to have that emotional vulnerability, but it's something maybe it's just me and maybe other fives can uh, attest to it. But it's something that we still want at the same time, even though it's incredibly hard to do. Um, just being seen and deeply known is important. And then once you are wanting to actually put the, uh, to use the word from Silent Planet, to take that ephemeral energy that constantly trying to keep but we're always losing, actually wanting to put that energy into something. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Sleeping at last uh, five just hit home for me. It's, mm-hmm. it, it's just something to experience more than anything. Talking about it almost doesn't do it justice, I think. It's, it's really just an experience more than anything else. So I think it's safe to say that we are very, very strongly recommending to all of our listeners that they listen to Everything Was Sound by Silent Planet and all of the Atlas tracks from Sleeping At Last. Yeah, please do. <laughs> yeah. Well, should we begin to wrap it up here? I guess, I guess so. I guess that was the gist of what we wanted to say. Yeah. Um, um, thank you, everyone who has tuned in. Uh, thank you for listening to our ramblings and our podcast. Um, we will see you next time. Yes. Thank you, everyone. Uh, I hope you learned something valuable from us today. Um, and yeah, uh, tune in next time. Thank you for listening. We appreciate you. We love you. You're all beautiful. And you're all going to do great things.